Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Psalm chapter 2, as you're you're making your way there, um, I want to give you some context on the passage just so we kind of have a a grasp on the text this morning. Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2 are actually kind of gatekeepers to the entire book of Psalms. Uh, They kind of go together um, and uh, help us understand the Psalms and really kind of set the tone and the pace for the Psalms. Let me just give you uh, just a quick little uh, insight here. If you look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, it begins with, blessed is the man. And look how Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 12 ends, so the very last verse of chapter 2. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's an end cap. It's called an inclusio. It's an end cap. It's a book end. And so those two Psalms kind of go together uh, to set the tone for the rest of the uh, book of Psalms. Uh, Psalms um, Psalm 2 is quoted. Uh, four times uh, in the New Testament, so it's quoted, it's quoted pretty frequently. It's really important. It's also alluded to in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, three times. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's heavily used in the New Testament, and so this psalm, Psalm 2, is also attributed to David. It doesn't say, it doesn't have the title uh, in the psalms. If you look at your psalms, if you look at the, uh, the psalm in your Bible, it doesn't say a psalm of David or anything like that, but we know that it's a psalm of David from Acts chapter 4, which we're going to be reading a little bit later. Now, here's an important thing we need to understand to grasp this psalm. So uh, in its immediate, we need to understand that there's a near and far uh, fulfillment of this psalm. There's a near and, and far context of this song. Uh, so the near context or fulfillment of this song is that of this psalm is that this psalm was used at a coronation of an uh, of a king uh, of a Jewish Israelite king uh, when they would you know uh, give him the throne when they would uh, they, when they would uh, install him to his kingship this psalm was sung during that time so that's the near kind of context of it but there's a far or ultimate context fulfillment of this psalm. And that is the installment, the coronation, the kingship of Jesus Christ, who ultimately fulfills Psalm chapter 2. And so for this sermon, we're really going to be focusing on that far fulfillment, that ultimate fulfillment, which is talking about Jesus Christ. Make sense? You with me? All right, good, good. So let's read Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we love you, we honor you in this place. God, like the song we were singing earlier, you sit on a throne of majesty, your will is complete, and you reign in victory. That's who you are. You are the sovereign Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth. And so we pray that you would speak to your people this morning through your word, your word is an errant, infallible, authoritative for our lives. I pray you would encourage. I pray that you would draw people towards you. I pray that your word would land, God, on good soil and produce much fruit. We quiet our hearts. We silent our, our hearts for just a moment from the distractions of life in the week and just focus completely on what you have to say to us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. And amen. Church, this morning, what I want to do is I want to just jump straight into the message. There's a lot to cover, as you can see. And what I want to do is I want to give you four headings this morning that kind of help us understand this text and grasp this text. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the rebellion of the world. Number one, the rebellion of the world, and specifically in verses 1 through 3. I want to read them again just to make sure we're, we're fresh. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this psalm, Psalm chapter 2, begins with a question. It begins with, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It begins really with a rhetorical question. It's not seeking an answer at all, but it's a question of amazement. It's a question of shock. It's a question of like, what is going on? It's a wonder type of question. Uh, for example, if you, if you ever have someone in your life that makes a, a very poor decision, like just really, really poor decision, sometimes you're just thinking like, what in the world are they thinking? You ever, anyone ever thought, that, like, what in the world are they thinking? That was just a poor decision. Really, that's what this question is. Like, what in the world is going on? Why, why would they do this? So what is the shock all about? What is this shock all about? The shock of the psalmist here is that the kings of the earth, the rulers of the, the earth, and the people of the earth, so really the entire world, is in absolute rebellion against God. Complete rebellion. Notice with me a few words that give us a clue as to their rebellion. It says, why do the nations rage? They use the word, the psalmist uses the word rage. Uh, in Hebrew, a lot of the times the, the, the word rage is used to describe like a raging sea, like a raging storm. The, the world, the rulers of the world, the people in the world are just raging like a raging sea against God. Notice also that they not only rage, but they plot or they plan against God. The word here uh, in 
in this, in this verse is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. Do you know what that word is? The word is meditate. If we go back to Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, we read about the blessed person or the happy person, right? And it says, on his law, he meditates day and night. It's the same word, but now here used for a rebellious world. The world thinks deeply about how it will rebel against God. The happy person, the blessed person, the person in Christ meditates on God's word. The wicked person or the worldly person will meditate and plan and plot and strategize on how they will rebel against God. Not only that, but they take counsel together. Uh, they have a, a huddle of how can we you know, uh, plot against God? How can we strategize against the kingdom of God? Remember Psalm 1, verse 1, it, said, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That's how the Psalm 1 starts. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And so here we see the wicked counseling together, giving each other counsel. The world is getting, getting together and say, how can we drive back the kingdom of God? How can we prevent it from moving forward? And when the world takes counsel together, both people, rulers, nations, organizations the result will always be against God all the time. And so we see the rebellion of this world against God, but not only against God of the Father, against his anointed, the verse says. Who is the anointed? Well, in the immediate context, it's the human king of Israel. He is anointed. The word to be anointed means to have a special relationship with God, being chosen, being set apart, being commissioned for a specific and special task. But ultimately, it refers to Jesus Christ, the anointed one. The, the word anointed means Christ in the Greek. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the set apart one. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah also in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. So when the world rages and rebels against God, they also rebel against Christ. And to rebel against Christ is to also rebel against God. It's the same thing. In the book of Acts, just to let you know, this does talk about Jesus, this anointed one. I want to give you some proof. Peter and John in the book of Acts are preaching the gospel, and they're threatened not to talk about Jesus, not to share about Christ any longer. And so after they're threatened, they go back to the house where the other believers were, and they begin to pray to God. And this is their prayer. And notice they quote they quote Psalm 2. It says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 and 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So that's how we know this Psalm is of the Holy Spirit. They're about to quote Psalm 2. This is a Psalm of David. They're about to quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles 
rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here, Peter and the group of believers are praying to God, and they're saying, this is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ who the world rebelled. And notice in the verse that I read, who were the ones that were responsible for his death. And who were there? Herod, Pontius Pilate, a Roman, Gentiles, and the Jewish people. They were all together, counseling together how they were going to get rid of Jesus. They were rebelling. They were planning. They were plotting. And yes, they did send him to the cross. And so this, this whole chapter is so relevant for today. You know, you often hear that the Bible is irrelevant for our day. That is so not true. It's not true, because this verse, this chapter is so relevant, and here's why. Isn't it interesting that our world can't really agree on anything these days? They just can't. On, you name it, our world cannot agree on anything. But there's one thing that our world can agree on, and that's against Jesus Christ. Man, you talk about going against Jesus and the world rebels. I mean, look at, look at this example in Acts chapter 4. Herod, right? A Jewish leader. Pontius Pilate, a, a Roman leader. Jews and Gentiles. They had nothing in common. The only thing they had in common was that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so the only thing that the world has in common is to rebel against God. So what is this amazing plan? It gets even more relevant. What is this amazing plan that the world tries to come up with? It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the plan of the world. That's the plan of the world. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does that mean? I like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says this, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. The plan of the rebellious world is to say, I don't want God to control my life. I don't want God to tell me what to do. Is that not relevant today or not? It is. I, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do what, what I please. God is not going to tell me what to do. I don't want to be under his control you see, the world sees being under God's rule and reign as bondage. The world sees being under God's rule and reign as slavery. The world sees being under God's rule and reign as oppression. But you and I know, believers, that to be free from God is really slavery to the world. We also know that it is in vain to attempt to free oneself from the lordship of Christ. There will be not one single person on this earth that can break free from the rule and reign of God upon their life. Not one person. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the sovereign creator and reigner of the universe. Every knee will bow, whether willingly or unwillingly, whether happily or reluctantly, whether now or in the future, whether in heaven or in hell, but every single knee will bow. You cannot escape the rule of Christ. Not one person. And so now notice how the Lord responds to their plan. I want you to see the ridicule of the Lord. That's their plan. We're going to be free from God's reign. Well, how does God respond to that? Look at the ridicule of the Lord. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God sits in heaven as the world plots against him, as the world rebels against him. This idea of God sitting in heaven means that he is on the throne ruling and reigning uncontested with full authority, absolute full authority. You see, he's not pacing back and forth. We don't have a God who paces back and forth. Oh my goodness, the world is, the world is, 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 is planning right now. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to come against me. I'm freaking out. What am I going to do? I don't think I'm powerful enough for the entire... We don't have a God that does that. He's not pacing back and forth in heaven, in the throne room of heaven, freaking out. He is sitting. He is stable. He is actually laughing at the world's plan. Have you ever thought about that? That God is laughing and ridiculing. That's what derision means. He's mocking the world for their plan to try to break free from his rule and reign. And not only does God laugh and ridicule their plan, but he speaks speaks to the world in wrath and fury. Both wrath and fury have to do with intense anger, kind of like the flaring of the nostrils. I have a younger brother, his name is Josh. He's going to hate me for this, but it's all right. Uh, I have the mic, and, um, and he's four years younger than me. But as an older brother, in my job description, I am called to give him a hard time, okay? Though you older siblings know. And so I would just really, I would mess with my brother all the time. I mean, 24-7, just joking with him. And, and he's already a serious kind of guy. And so uh, even just being younger and, and, and messing with him all the time, poking fun of him, whatever. And, um, and I, I, I kind of knew when he had enough. Like, I knew when Josh was like, okay, like, it's, it's, a, it's on, all right? He would stand and he would clench his hands, and I'm not kidding. I'm about to do it. I'm about to make myself look stupid, but I'll do it. And, uh, and, and he would do this. <laughs> I mean, when I saw that, I was just, okay, yeah, I'm done. Okay, I'm done. All right? But that's what, that's what this wrath and fury is talking about. And it's not my little brother. 
This is the God of heaven and earth. We don't talk about the wrath of God very much in church these days. That's God. Furious against a rebellious world. God not only hates sin, listen closely, but God also hates the sinner. Let me point you to the verse. It's in our Psalms. Greg's going to cover in a couple of weeks. Psalm, Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. What's more evil than re- rebelling against God? Nothing. Yes, God loves people. That's true. And God loves people in a common grace way. Absolutely, God loves those who don't know him in a common grace way, but not in a saving grace way until they surrender their lives to Jesus. Until then, God also hates evildoers. And what does he say to them? He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what he says to them in his anger. Notice this. It's in the past tense. I have set. I have set my king. Listen, you have a plan, and you're strategizing how you're going to push back my plan and my kingdom and thwart my plan. I have already set my king. The plan's already in place. And so Jesus installs his king, King Jesus. God installs his king, King Jesus, as a condemnation against a rebellious world. Okay, you want to rebel against me? Okay. I have set my king, Jesus. He is Lord. And if you rebel against him, there will be some consequences. And so he sets Jesus as the king, and nothing can change that plan. But not only does he set Jesus as king for condemnation, but also, we'll see in just a moment, for comfort as well. So we have seen the rebellion of the world, the ridicule of the Lord, and now I want us to see, third, the reign of the Son. I want us to see the reign of the Son in verses 7 through 9. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we see the Son speaking. Now we see Christ speaking through this psalm here. The right for Christ to rule and reign is based on two things. It's based on the decree of God, and it's based on his relationship with God. Notice he says, I will tell, this is Christ speaking, the Lord speaking, of the decree. What is a decree? A decree is simply uh, uh, the plan of God, the eternal plan of God before the foundations of the world for his creation. And nothing can change it, and nothing can stop it, and nothing can thwart the plan of God. Now, in this immediate context, 
It's talking about the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so essentially, uh, the, the Davidic covenant promised that the king would experience sovereign rule over all of the nations. That's what God promised the king, David, and his, uh, the kings after him, the Davidic line. And it declared that the king would be a son to God and that God would be a father to him. So the Davidic covenant has this idea of sovereignty over all of creation, all of the nations, all of the people, and a special relationship, father-son relationship with God. And that's what we see in this verse, don't we? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what we see that the Lord is saying of the decree. Now, this decree speaks of specifically and ultimately, like I said, about Jesus Christ. It speaks about the kingship of Jesus. It speaks about the coronation and installment of God's son, Jesus Christ. The decree finds its ultimate fulfillment at Jesus's exaltation after he ascended to heaven post his resurrection. Let me just show you where I got this from. It's not making it up this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, it speaks about his exaltation. But it also, again, quotes Psalm 2. It says, he is the radiance, speaking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, that's power, sovereign lordship. After making purification of sins, what did he do? He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Then he quotes Psalm 2. For to which of his angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is Jesus reigning. This is where Psalm 2 finds its ultimate fulfillment, that Jesus is God's son, begotten son, that he is crowned king, ruler, that the Davidic covenant finds his goal and ultimate end in Jesus. And I just want to make something clear here. When the scripture says, today I have begotten you, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Jesus was not created. He's eternal. He's the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and end. In its context, what this refers to is to the privileges of Christ, to the privileges of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the kingly Son of God. The question is, what are those privileges? What are those privileges that Jesus has as now the king and the ruler of the universe? Well, he gets an inheritance. He has an inheritance. Christ has received the people of the world as his inheritance. He is sovereign over all people, both those who rebel against him and those who do not rebel against him and have surrendered their life to him. But the question is, if Christ then receives all people as his inheritance, as his privilege of sonship and kingship, 
what does he do or what will he ultimately do with the people who have rebelled against him? What will he do ultimately at the end of time with people, with a world who rebelled against Jesus and never truly surrendered their life to him? Well, the text tells us here very plainly and very clearly. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, at the end of time, will not tell a rebellious world, hey, you tried your best. You, you tried your best. I know you weren't perfect, but you tried your best. And I know deep down inside you were a good person. Come on in. Jesus ultimately, at the end of time, the judgment day, will not tell a rebellious world, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So why is that the only thing we hear these days of where we tell people who don't know Christ, God has a wonderful plan for your life? Why do we leave out this part of the story? The rod of iron, church, signifies complete rule and authority, strength, and power. As a king holds a scepter, he holds a rod. So Jesus will also have full, complete strength, authority, and power. And what the psalmist attempts to do here is to paint a picture of how easily Jesus will crush, condemn, judge, and punish all who rebel against him. The text says that he will have a rod of iron, probably heavy, and he will break. He will break, he will shatter into pieces this vessel made of clay. That's judgment language. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5, has the same idea. This is speaking about the second coming of Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Steve Lawson, my professor, puts it this way. Jesus is your greatest hope, but he's also your greatest threat. Jesus is your greatest hope, but he's also your greatest threat. Lastly and fourth, here's what I want you to see, is the response of the wise. The response of the wise. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, O world, right? Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. People, be warned, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is now the wise person. The psalmist now offers both wisdom and warnings, and he's telling the people of the world, the kings, the rulers, he's telling the entire world, hey, it is wise. Wise is the person who serves the Lord. In Hebrew, the word serve actually refers to worship. It refers to the worship of God, and it refers to obeying God's commands. And so that's really the wise person, the one who serves the Lord, the one who worships God with both their lips and their lives, the one who obeys God and displays that he loves God by the way that he lives for God. The wise person serves, worships, obeys God with joy, with gladness, with delight, not out of duty. The wise person serves God with fear and trembling, with absolute reverence for a holy and righteous and sovereign God. I think Psalm 2 is probably one of the most evangelistic psalms there is in the Bible. It's calling people who have never surrendered to Christ, who never served or worshipped God to him. But I also believe that this psalm serves as a psalm for those who are also self-deceived. Hey, I'm a Christian, although I don't live like it, but I'm still a Christian. This is a way we can examine our lives to see if we're truly in the faith, as Paul says. Is there a desire to truly and genuinely and joyfully worship the Lord? Is there a desire to obey his commandments, not out of duty, but delight? It's a great way, great psalm to examine ourselves. And notice he says, here, here's some more wise words. Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. That's interesting, right? What does it mean to kiss the son? Well, it was a symbolic act. And the idea refers to a king that was conquered by another king, more powerful king. And so the king that was conquered would go up to the throne of this victorious king. He would kneel down and he would kiss his feet in honor and submission to him. And so the psalmist here is saying, not only serve the Lord, worship him, obey him, but surrender your life to the Son. Surrender your life to Christ. Bow the knee while you can here. Surrender your life. Kiss his feet. Kiss the son. Give up total control of your life and surrender all of your life to him. Look at the last piece of wisdom. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word blessed there means happy. But not like the world describes it, or not like the world thinks about it. You see, the world says, hey, you can find happiness in relationships. 
You could find happiness in money. You could find happiness in materialistic things. You could find happiness in alcohol. You could find uh, happiness in all these things. But those things never satisfy. But happy is the person who is truly satisfied with the Lord. That's what this word means. A person who is overflowing with joy and contentment and eternal satisfaction in the Lord, not in anything else. And ultimately, it refers to salvation itself. Blessed, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, who place their faith in the Lord, who take refuge in the Lord. The word, the word refuge is really synonymous with trust, to place your faith in. And so happy, eternally happy, eternally blessed, eternally satisfied, eternally saved and forgiven and redeemed are those who take refuge in Christ. To rebel is to perish. And to take refuge is to find blessing. So, what are the implications for this passage? What are the major implications for our life for this passage, from this passage? Well, I think it depends. Depends on who you are. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered to Christ, If you're here this morning and you've never bowed to the knee, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, repented of sin, turned, turned away from sin and towards Christ, I think there's only one implication for you this morning, and that's to surrender your life to Christ. To surrender your life to Christ. You see, verses 10, 11, and 12, what they really are, they're an invitation of God's grace to you. That's what this is. O kings, be warned. Rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. It's an invitation to you, my friend. It's an invite from God to you to turn away from sin and towards him. Yes, it's true, everything I've said, that God is wrathful and, and there will be judgment, yes, but today, right now, you have a special invitation to come and surrender, to come and bow the knee, to acknowledge the Lord as your Savior and your Lord, to come and take refuge in Him. Will you accept that invitation? I'm not inviting you. God is, through His Word. Come serve me. Come worship me. Come obey me. Come find refuge in me.
all those things that you were, thought were going to satisfy you, you op- they don't. I will. You want forgiveness? Come. You want healing? Come. You want joy? Come. You want hope? Come. You want purpose? Come. You want meaning? Come to me. Come to him. How do you do that? Right where you are. There's no special prayer. You don't need to come down an aisle. There's no magical words. Right where you are. God, I surrender my life. I surrender my life to you today. And I commit to following after you, to pursuing you, to worshiping you, to obeying you, to serving you all the days of my life. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand I'm under your judgment. But today, I take refuge in you. And I go from sinner to son. I go from being in darkness to being in light, from being hopelessness to being hopelessness to being hopeful. Come to Christ. If you're a believer, the implications is that we continue to surrender. Yes, we surrendered once, right, at conversion, at salvation. But we don't just surrender once and that's it. Oh, I'm done. I've already done it. We continue to surrender. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, says, pray this way. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, it's your way, not my way. It's your agenda, not my agenda. It's, it's your plan, your purpose, not mine. It's your will, not mine. We continue to surrender to God. We continue to serve God and worship him and obey him joyfully, don't we? It wasn't just a one-time thing, but a continual thing in our lives. Where we first seek the kingdom of God, where we die to ourselves daily and live for him. So we continue to serve him and surrender. Secondly, I think the implication is this, that just as the psalmist urged the people to submit to, this, to the Messiah, or to the king, so too we are urged to call people to the king. So too we are urged to point people to the king. I mean, look at the urgency of the psalmist when he is urging people to serve the Lord and kiss the Son. He says, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth. There's some urgency here. A love for people far from Christ. And our call is to do the same to warn them of the wrath to come, but to point also to the blessings to come as well. Man, we have to cultivate an urgency for the lost, to call them to Christ, to compel them to come to him. What if, could you imagine just for a second, what if 
just, just our church, our little church play in North Peoria said, you know what? I am going to be passionate more than ever to reach the lost, to reach those who are far from God, who have absolutely no hope and no future. And I will do whatever it takes to reach the lost. Could you imagine what our community would look like? Instead of going out to North Peoria, where there's people who are not following Christ, rebelling against him, what if we could change our community? Could you imagine? One person at a time, one conversation at a time, sharing the gospel with one person at a time, praying one person at a time, inviting someone to church one person at a time. Could you imagine what that would do? And lastly, the final implication for the believer is this. There's so much comfort from this psalm, isn't there? Believer, I don't know what you're going through this morning, but let me remind you that there's comfort in this psalm. That you belong to a God who keeps his promises. You belong to a God whose plan for your life cannot be thwarted, cannot be changed, cannot be derailed. Believer, you have a God who sits in the heavens, who rules and reigns, who's not pacing in heaven, freaking out. And if your God, believer, is not freaking out, then you shouldn't be either. Because he's your God. He's your Father. He cares for you. So much comfort in this verse. Let us pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. We thank you for your word, although it's sometimes just tough to not understand, but to just grasp and accept. But God, your word is your word, and we love it. It is full of truth and grace and love. And so, God, I just pray today that you would draw, sovereignly draw by your grace those who don't know you. You would take them from darkness to light, from death to life. I pray you would breathe new life into them through the power of your spirit. And God, for the believer, would you comfort the believer? You are an amazing God. You're a sovereign God. That you're in absolute control of everything that happens in our world, including our life. No matter what we're going through, and what, no matter what valley we're in, God, you reign in heaven. We honor you for that, and we thank you for that. 
may we go out to our world and be the light in a dark and rebellious world so that those who are far from you may come to you. We love you. We thank you. We honor you in this place. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.